John's gospel, and we're already in chapter 5. Now, to me, that feels very fast. Now, I don't know if that feels very fast to you, but to me, that feels very fast. So we're already to to John chapter 5, and I hope you are spending a little bit of time on your own in John's gospel. I really want to encourage you to be reading it, and here's one of the main reasons why, other than it's good habit to be in to read your Bible every day. But I would like to encourage you to do that because we are not covering every single thing in John's gospel. There are parts that we're not hitting as hard or we're completely not even talking about. So if you will read it, then you will fill in some of those pieces that we're not even talking about here on Sunday morning. So let me just, or in Saturday night. So let me just encourage you to, uh, to, to be about reading it at the same time. So here we are in chapter 5, and if you have got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to chapter 5, or you can open up on your app, all the scripture will be there. But by the time we get to chapter 5, Jesus' ministry is really starting to pick up some steam. Now, we spent some time last weekend um, looking at this incredible conversation that Jesus had with uh, this Samaritan woman where Jesus had never met her before, but he was able to tell her very intimate details about her life, and, and it kind of blew her away. And so she went and told other people about this guy that told me everything I ever did, and they came out, and, and the result of that was over two days' visit of Jesus. Many of them became believers. Next, Jesus, in, the, in, the, in, our, in our study, next, Jesus will perform his second miracle that we read about in John's Gospel. Ironically, this miracle takes place in the very same town as his first miracle. Now, what was his first miracle? Turning water into wine. And what town was that in? Cana. Very good. You're listening. Yeah, praise God. I'm, you're learning something. Or, or maybe you already knew it. But anyway, you're right. It was the, the town of Cana. So Jesus has come back to that. And while he's there... He is approached by someone who's just described as a royal official, okay? So this royal official, he traveled a pretty good distance to find Jesus. And the reason why he was so passionate to find Jesus, as we read in John's gospel, is that his son had become very ill and his death was imminent. And so he travels to find Jesus and he finds him and he says, Jesus, please, he begs him. The Bible says he begged him to come and and Jesus didn't go. But Jesus did this instead. He said, I'm going to tell you what. Your son's going to live. And so this man, this royal official, he takes Jesus at his word and he travels home. And, and, and he's heading home and he's still quite a ways off, but people from his home come rushing out to him. They've got such exciting news that they don't want to wait for him to travel home. They're going to travel to him. So they meet kind of in the middle and they said, your son is alive. He is healed. Everything is going to be okay. And this royal official goes, what time did that happen? And they said, well, it happened about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And he's like, that's exactly when I was talking to Jesus. And, and so here you have this incredible miracle where Jesus did not even go. He wasn't even in the same town. By all we know, Jesus didn't even know his name. But he saw this man. He saw what we can presume to be faith. I'm going to find Jesus, and, and I know Jesus can do something. And just said, Jesus said, I know, I, I, I know your son. He's going to be just fine. From the other Gospels, it would seem that by this point in Jesus' ministry, he has been about this healing work for a little bit of time now, and he has developed a reputation everywhere he goes as somebody who can heal people. And I think that's why this royal official um, came to find Jesus. He heard about Jesus. Um, He he knew his reputation that people who interact with Jesus become healed, and, and that's why he went. So by chapter 5, word is really spreading about Jesus. 
is, if you could say, his reputation is starting to precede him now as he goes from town to town. Now, we get to chapter 5, and and I'll be honest, it starts a little bit generic. It just simply says this, that sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. How much time later? I have no idea. I don't know if this was a week after he healed that guy's son. Is this a year later? I'm not really sure, and it just sometime later. And this is a good point to remind you about John's purpose in writing. John, his gospel's a little bit different than the other three, as we pointed out in the very first sermon. John is focusing on the major points about Jesus' life. His motivation is to talk about these major things in Jesus' life and explain what they're all about so that people will read about it and they will believe. John is not so much concerned about giving us a point-by-point chronological description of Jesus' life. That's what the other three Gospels do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give you more of a chronological discussion and view of Jesus' life and his events. But John's a little bit different. So John is saying, you know, sometime later, this at some point in his three-year ministry, this is what happens next. Look at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is a, in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool. A sheep, the Sheep Gate is just one of the entrances into the city. Still there? Which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So he's talking about this one day, Jesus in Jerusalem, there's this pool, Pool of Bethsaida, it's by the Sheep Gate coming into the city. So there's some geographical descriptions of where this is. And he says there was an invalid there by the pool who who had been an invalid for 38 years. That word invalid, that's an English word that we get from a Greek translation. It really just means any kind of debilitating um, you know, situation or condition. So we don't know exactly what was wrong with this guy physically. Now, we do know just from the rest of the story that he is laying down, and, and, and all, so he's probably got some kind of physical condition that keeps him from walking, limits his mobility. So he's there by this pool. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now that's a pretty incredible miracle. 38 years of this, and all of a sudden he's healed. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's an incredible miracle. Is there somebody sitting close? Just let them know in case they missed it. That's an incredible miracle. And if you're sitting on the outside, just tell the wall. It'll listen. That's an, that's an incredible miracle, all right? You know what I love about the Bible and everything that we read about in the Bible? It's the fact that you can visit many of these places that we read about in the Bible today. You, you can see it. You can actually visit this place today, the, the pool of Bethsaida where this miracle happened. I've been there and I've seen it with my own eyes. The pools of Bethsaida, they were discovered in the 19th century and archaeologists came in and they dug it all up and excavated it. See, what happens is over time, if you know how history and civilizations are, things get built, they get knocked down, things get built on top of it, you know, they get covered up with dirt, they get built upon. This is all happening over several thousand years. Well, they discovered it. 
And guess where they discovered it? Right where the Bible said it was, next to the what gate? The sheep gate. They kind of knew it had to be there. And so they found it, and, and, and quite a while now they, ago, they, they dug it up, and it's a tourist attraction now. You can actually see the pools where this miracle happened. In fact, I got a picture of it, so you can see what it looks like today. Obviously, it looks a little different. We got that picture? Is that up there somewhere? There it is. Now, obviously, this looks a little different than the way it did uh, 2,000 years ago. But here is one of the pools of Bethsaida. There were several pools. If you go there today, you can see that there are several pools. We don't know exactly which pool that this miracle took place on, but it was in this one, or it was the one right next to it, or the one right over next to that one. It's real close. There was a series of pools. And this is in the area where Jesus saw this guy, and he said, Do you want to get well? Why did Jesus ask that question? Do you want to get well? Because, I mean, obviously, whatever this guy's disability was, it was obvious just by looking at him. But even still, even if it's an obvious disability, why would Jesus just randomly ask this guy, do you want to get well? I mean, think about it like this. If you were to go out to the mall later today, and let's say you encountered somebody you'd never met, and, and it was obvious there was some kind of ailment, they, 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 there was a disability or something, would your natural tendency be to walk up and say, hey, do you want to get well? We wouldn't do that. It's, it's an odd question. But when you learn a little bit about this pool and some of the superstitions of the day surrounding this pool, Jesus' question doesn't seem so odd. And honestly, his response to Jesus doesn't seem that odd either. Either Here, Here's what I'm talking about. Back in Jesus' day, there was this superstition surrounding the pool of Bethsaida. And, um, and, and this superstition is probably the reason for why so many people that had physical elements used to hang out at these pools. You see, there was something about the water there that sometimes it would get stirred up, and they couldn't always explain why it would move and get stirred up. And there was a superstition that said that an angel sometimes would swoop in and stir the water. And so it was kind of believed, kind of an old wives' tale, a superstitious kind of belief that when the waters would stir, if you were the first one in, then you would get healed. Now, let me tell you something. If, this is some, if you believe this, Okay, If you believe that, hey, when those waters do that thing it does sometimes, if I'm the first one in, I'm going to get healed. Now, that kind of makes sense in why so many people with all these physical ailments would be hanging around by a pool, waiting for the waters to get stirred so that they can be the first one in. And if that is the case, if that really was what the motivation here, it kind of makes sense for why this guy responded to Jesus the way he did. So Jesus is like, do you want to get well? I, I tend to think that Jesus is asking kind of a, 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 a no-brainer question. It's almost like the tone of it, perhaps. I don't want to read into it, but maybe the tone is more like, I can see you want to get well. You are here waiting by the pool. I, I can see it's obvious. Do you want to get well? And this guy doesn't say yes. What does he say? Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, do you understand what he's saying here? He's like, I've been hanging out here for 38 years. I don't know. And the water doesn't get stirred that often. And because I can't get there myself, somebody always gets in first. 
So I, Jesus, do you want to get well? Well, obviously he does. He goes, but I can't, I'm never first to get in the water. And Jesus is like, you do not have to believe in silly superstitions. Just pick up your mat and go. And the very word of Jesus, this man who had been suffering from this condition for 38 years, he stands up and he walked out. Now, we're going to come back to this because I don't want to just glaze over it, but I want to point out something very significant about Jesus, and I don't want you to miss it. I want you to notice that Jesus, wherever he went, he didn't just hang out with the wealthy, the elite, the well-educated. He didn't just spend time with those people. No, no, no. He hung out with and seemed to be in the Gospels, more drawn to the disabled, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And we have so many records of Jesus helping them. So Jesus hanging out by the pool of Bethsaida this day with a bunch of very needy people probably felt very natural to Jesus because all throughout his life, he had a very least of these mentality about the things that he would go and do. He was drawn to people who needed a Savior. And so it's no surprise. And that's never changed. And I would hope that 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 mentality has carried over through the centuries and landed on us. It should. So when you think about taking care of each other and watching out for one another's needs and putting others first and carrying other people's burdens and serving the needs of others, going the extra mile, taking in somebody who needs help and love, helping your neighbor, all of these kind of attributes reflect the very life of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about these things, in the rest of the New Testament, when it writes about all these things, it really is a carryover of Jesus' mentality and his ministry and the things that he did every single day that should be overlaid on the church. Now, this is not the last time you're going to see this out of Jesus. In fact, you're going to see it a lot as we go forward in our, our study. Now, I'll tell you, back to this guy who got healed, you would think that being healed of a 38-year-old disability, now that would be great news and a cause for huge celebration to everyone. Isn't that a jaw-dropping thing? I mean, I mean, that would be like, wow, and you would think this is the most amazing thing ever. And guess what? You'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. This was not the most amazing. This, this was not a cause for celebration. Look at verse 9. Let's keep reading. Look what happens. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who was healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Can you believe that? But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, well, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, there's a lot of things happening right here in these few verses. But what I'd like to focus on uh, for our purposes tonight is that the joy of this man's healing got lost in the muck of, re of, of religious legalism. That's what happened. No one was upset over the fact that this man all of a sudden could walk after 38 years. 
but they were extremely angry over the fact that this healing happened on the Sabbath day. I mean, I mean these guys walked in, and, and they should have been joyful. Look what God did. But all they could think is like, man, he didn't check off this box and this rule. He went out, and, and he carried his mat. He's a, he's a lawbreaker. Well, I tell you, I can't remember how many times we, we've seen in the church over the years where something fantastic has happened, and we're like, look what God did. And, and inevitably, somebody will walk in and is like, well, they're joy suckers. <laughs> they come in and they suck the joy out of some, and, and usually that's being driven along. I, I didn't mean to be funny by that, but thank you. <laughs> they are driven along by this religious, legalistic mentality. Look what God is doing. Look, this person has been redeemed. Well, you don't know him like I know him. No, celebrate what God is. So instead of celebrating what happened for this guy, all they could think about was him being a lawbreaker. You're carrying your mat. They said, it's the Sabbath. What are you doing? And I'm like, are you kidding me? If I was this guy, and I'm not this guy because I live in America in 2019, I'm not under Jewish law, I didn't grow up, so there's a complete disconnect. But the, this version, me, Joe Williams, wants to say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I haven't walked in 38 years, and 10 minutes later, you're giving me grief about my mat? You've got to be kidding me. Well, their issue was the Sabbath day, and let me give you a little history here. The Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week, and Jews were to abstain from all work on the Sabbath. It, it was a traditional day of rest. It still is. And this goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. It actually goes all the way back to creation, but became law later. But when you, get, you read the Ten Commandments, you come to the Fourth Commandment, and you remember what it says. It says, keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember it. Keep it holy. And then it explains a little bit more. It says in that commandment, six days you shall labor in all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now, Pastor Taylor, two weeks ago, he touched a little bit on all these rules and regulations, these things you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. So basically, for our context today, physical labor on the Sabbath was a big-time no-no. Now, the Bible never explicitly explains what is work? It just says, don't work on the Sabbath. And, and it was taken to extremes. I would like to believe that God's intention was, I didn't make you to be a workaholic. I, I didn't make you to work seven days a week. So what's a good? Work six days, rest on one of those days, make it holy to me. But what they did is they felt like they needed to, when I say they, I mean the religious leaders, they needed to define what work was. And so they identified 39 behaviors associated with work that said, don't do anything like this. And one of those was a, they forbid people to carry things out of their home. And that's why they gave this guy grief. Well, you're walking around carrying your mat. That is forbidden. When I was in Israel last summer, I kind of encountered some of these Sabbath rules that are still very much in play for very religious Jewish people. I was in the hotel in Jerusalem, and I walked out of my room, went down, and pushed the button for the elevator. It was the Sabbath day, and it, nothing lit up. It just, but eventually, 
Took a while, but the elevator came. It opened up. I hopped on. It closed. And I wanted to go down, but the thing went up. And then it went to the next floor. It opened up. And I'm like, I don't want to go up. I'm trying to make it work. The doors close. It goes up one more floor. The doors open. Nothing. This elevator is not responding to my commands. Have you, I don't know if you've ever been to an elevator like that. So I went up another floor, and it opened. I'm like, I'm getting out of here. So I jumped out, and I went down the stairs. It was later that I learned why the elevator was not obeying my commands. It was the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath day, there are several elevators in the hotel, in every hotel in Jerusalem, in every building in Jerusalem, that goes into a Sabbath day mode. And the Sabbath day mode means the buttons don't work. It's just an automatic and it just goes to every floor, opens, closes, and one floor at a time. Gets to the top, comes back down. All Sabbath long. It's part of their Sabbath day rules. Now, I, I was curious when I learned that, oh, it does that because of Sabbath day. Well, why does it do, do that? So I did a little quick little research, and I, I learned that this goes back all the way to you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And one of these rules were you are not allowed to create a spark or make a fire on the Sabbath. Now, way back, that all was associated with work. You know, think about all the work that involved with fire. Like, you can't make a fire, that's work. And so how that has been adapted and, 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 and created to meet modern-day civilization, that you are not to operate electrical equipment on the Sabbath because that still, with electricity, is like creating spark and fire. And so pushing the button creates a little, I guess, spark. And that's, that's work. And so they create the Sabbath day elevators to keep you from doing that. And a very, very devout Jewish people won't even flip on the light switch for the very same reasons. They do not want to violate the law. These rules, friends, the very same kind of mentality that Jesus faced on this day when he healed the man at the Pool of, Bethsa the Pool of Bethsaida is the same kind of rules that people follow in Jerusalem today. Very devout Jews. So this issue wasn't about the man being healed. It was about him carrying his mat and the day that he, he did it. And I think his attitude, maybe, I'm just reading into it, is don't blame me. I was just hanging out by the pool. Somebody did this to me. I'm not a lawbreaker. And eventually found out it was Jesus. And I don't think the guy was throwing Jesus under the bus. I think he probably did what we naturally do. It wasn't my fault. And they found out it was Jesus. And if you look at verse 16, this is why they're so angry. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, these things, it's probably a reference to this wasn't the only guy Jesus healed. We're going to learn all throughout the Gospels, Jesus did a lot of stuff on the Sabbath. So I think these things are, are, is a reference to what he's continuing to do. So because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. From this moment forward, there is not going to be one day go by in Jesus' ministry where there is not conversation somewhere about killing him. This thing, this behavior on the Sabbath, it is going to be a recurring theme come up over and over and over again. The religious leaders, they are going to regularly argue amongst themselves and with Jesus about what they perceive is a lack of respect for the Sabbath. We read about this time in Luke chapter 13 when Jesus was invited to teach in one of the synagogues. And there was a woman there who had been crippled for 18 years. And the Bible says that she was bent over like this. Now can you imagine having to be like this for 18 years? 
And Jesus had all this compassion on her, and so he healed her. And in that very moment, she stood up straight, and you know what the first thing she did? She praised God. I mean, literally, this thing happened in church. Well, the synagogue leader, the guy in charge of that synagogue, was so angry at Jesus. He said this in Luke chapter 13, verse 14. He said, look it, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on one of those days, not the Sabbath. Can you imagine? Can you imagine telling somebody who was healed on the Sabbath, you just picked the wrong day for that. Well, this is when Jesus was here. I mean, literally, he's upset. This woman of 18 years who's probably been a part of his synagogue her whole life. And he's upset because it didn't happen on one of the first six days of the week. It happened on the, the Sabbath day. Now, so this is a big issue for the religious leaders who were in charge of teaching the law and enforcing the law. They perceived Jesus to be a lawbreaker, and this perception of Jesus being a lawbreaker will follow him all the way to Calvary all the way to the cross. And this is an important detail about the life of Jesus. Now, coming back to John chapter 5, uh, because Jesus healed this man at the pool of Bethsaida on the, on the Sabbath day, they start to persecute him. Um, they, they choose to ignore this incredible miracle. Should have blown him away, but they begin to hound and harass Jesus for quote-unquote working on the Sabbath day. So Jesus will defend himself. He's like, well, let me tell you why. Look at verse 17. This is Jesus kind of making a defense of what he did. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now they're really mad. Okay. They were mad, but now they are furiously mad. They may not have been had Jesus had said, you know, our Father is always at work. That's the customary way of referencing God. He could have said, you know, our Father, you're like, hey, you know, we're all brothers here. Our Father, but that's not what he said. He said, my Father, my Father is continually working. What did Jesus just claim to be in their presence? He claimed to be God's very Son. It's like Jesus saying it like this. Well, I'll tell you why I'm allowed to heal. You guys say it work. I swear, I don't think it's work, but I'll tell you, my father, he's always on the clock. And so am I. That's how they would have understood this. God's never off the clock. Neither am I. Do you, do you remember back in chapter 1, John's description of Jesus, that God and Jesus are one? And the very fact that Jesus is now publicly alluding to this truth in front of all the religious guys, it did not pass over their heads. No, they got what he was saying. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. If you're familiar with the entire story of Jesus, do you recall one of the, the charges, if not the big charge, leveled at Jesus that gave them justification for killing him. They charged him with blasphemy, claiming to be God. The penalty for this kind of blasphemy is death. So right here early in Jesus' ministry, 
The stage has been set for Jesus' journey to the cross. There's going to be, and this, it's the same in all four Gospels, there is going to be a growing tension from this point forward between Jesus and these religious leaders. You're going to see and read right here in the Gospel of John that there are several times that they are actually ready to kill Jesus, but they are unable to. Why is that? It's, it's, this, it's because of this very fact. God, or excuse me, Jesus is both fully God and fully man at the same time, and that's why they could not inflict their will until he was good and ready. In fact, two short chapters from now, we're going to read uh, in chapter 7 about a mob that got upset at Jesus, and they tried to seize him, but they were unable to do it. And the only explanation for why they couldn't is because the Bible says his time had not come. In that very same chapter, these religious leaders, they sent guards to go arrest Jesus, and they couldn't do it either. They, they, they couldn't do it. Why? Because Jesus' time had not yet come. And I want you to see this. This is so important. This has ramifications for our lives today. There's not a moment that Jesus walked the earth that he was not in complete control of every single situation. Not one moment. And we need to remember that because the same thing is true today. We need to remember that, especially in times of great stress and fear and struggle, that there is not one single tarry second of your life where Jesus is not in control. I know it's hard to remember at times, because things can get pretty hard and scary. But it was true then, and it's still true today. Well, let's move forward. Verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom? He is pleased to give it. Okay, it's getting in deep doo-doo now. <laughs> Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You're going to need to go back and read that a few more times. But basically, there's two things that Jesus claims in these few verses. And the first one is this, something we've already covered. In these few short verses, Jesus claims to be equal with God. And like I said, we've covered this quite extensively. I'm not going to dig into it again right now. But did you see that when they made this claim, you know, it's like, oh, he thinks he's equal with God? He doesn't deny it. In fact, he endorses it. Jesus claims that to be one with the Father, not just one with the Father, but with the things that the Father does, his, let's use the word, his works. The things there, you're working on the Sabbath. He says, hey, I am one with God. I am one with his very works. It's like Jesus is saying it. I, I read it kind of like this. If healing on the Sabbath, if that is such a bad thing, then, then blame God for that because I am about his business. The Lord and I are working together. We're going about things the same way. This is what he's trying to communicate, and it will culminate in John chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus famously says, 
that uh, the Father and I are one. He will spell this out multiple times. Everything in Jesus' ministry points to this truth. I'll give you one example of that. Matthew chapter 4 and one of the other Gospels, right after Jesus was baptized, the Bible says that Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he fasted. And then at the end, he was hungry. He was thirsty. Obviously, he was, he was weak. But at the end of that 40 days, that's when the tempter came and he, and he gave three tests to Jesus. He said, Jesus turned these stones into bread. He also said, throw yourself down. So he took him to the highest point in the Temple Mount, said, throw yourself down. You'll be okay, right? And then he says, bow down and worship me. Three times, three times early in Jesus' ministry, he tempted him to act independently of God. It's like, like hey, hey, you can do this. So it's like, you can separate yourself from God. And maybe he even said, I did. Three times he, uh, he tempted Jesus to act independently. But what's it say in Matthew 4.10? He says, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he said, I'm, gonna, I'm about the Father's business. We're going to worship the Father. We're going to be about his work. So they're coming at Jesus saying, you shouldn't have done that on the Sabbath. And, he, and I think Jesus was saying, you got an issue with God, not with me. Because I'm about his business. We're together. We're equal on this stuff. So that's the, the, he makes that claim. God, Lord and I are equal. The second claim he makes is this. He claims to be able to raise the dead. Now for Jesus to make this claim, it's like automatic blasphemy because in the Jewish world, only God could ever do anything like that. That power to raise the dead was for God alone. Again, Jesus is like, hey, I'm connecting a dot for you. God and I are one. So he talks about raising the dead. See, in Jewish uh, tradition and in, in, in their belief that Jehovah God was the only one who could do three things. He had the power to open up heaven and give rain. You can read that in Deuteronomy 28. He had the power to open a womb and, and give conception. We read that in Genesis 30. And he had the power to open up the grave and raise the dead. We read about that in Ezekiel 37. Now, at this point in Jesus' life, he hasn't raised anybody from the dead. He will but at this point, no. And ultimately, Jesus will himself raise from the dead, proving he absolutely does have the authority to do these things. Oh yeah, they're not happy with Jesus. And I want you to see, it's these things that set the wheels in motion for his death. In his own time, in his own way, this tension will carry the message of salvation. Final verse we'll look at today is verse 24. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. So yes, Jesus was talking about raising the dead, but he's also talking about raising the spiritually dead to life. That which what we all were before we fulfilled this very verse became believers. Whoever hears my words and believes has sent or has eternal life. May that be true of each and every one of us 